Welcome to Russian History Retold. Episode 283, Sports and the Soviet Union. Last time, we ended our two-part series on the 18 conflicts Russia has been involved in since the breakup of the Soviet Union in 1991. Today, we embark on an entirely different topic, sports role in the Soviet Union. But before I get into that, I have some sad news to share. One of the reasons that I started this podcast was to educate my two daughters about their heritage, about their side of the family that was Russian, so that they would know the rich history. Unfortunately, on September 23rd, my oldest daughter, Anastasia, also known as Anastasia, passed away at the age of 27. She was one of the reasons I started this and will be one of the reasons I continue. So thank you for listening to that and hug your kids or your spouses or anybody else near you because you never know when it's time. Let's get into this podcast. This was probably the most challenging topic I've attempted to create a podcast episode over the past 13 and a half years. Several books on the subject are available, but some are just absolutely cost prohibitive. When a used copy nears $300, I truly hesitate to take the plunge. Instead, I decided to see if there was enough information online to accomplish the task at hand. Happily, there was more than enough information to create a unique episode. Before we get to Soviet sports, we need to learn a little bit about athletics and the old Russian Empire. Looking at participation in the Olympics is a way to view a country's involvement in sports. Restarted in 1896 in Athens, Greece, the modern Olympics did not get Russian participation until the 1900 Summer Games held in St. Louis, Missouri. Only four Russian athletes attended, with six attending the 1908 London Games. By 1912, at the Games in Stockholm, 159 Russians came. This would be the last time a Russian would appear at an Olympics game for the next 40 years. When the Bolsheviks took control in 1917, they viewed sports as an example of a bourgeois program. They regarded the idea of competitive sports as a means of diverting the workers' focus away from class struggles and revolution. In the 1920s, they turned away from all international sports. The Bolsheviks also condemned the idea of competitive, quote-unquote, medal chasing. This, to them, was another sign of bourgeois decadence. From what I've gathered, Lenin saw absolutely no value in sports. Even though, when he was a teenager, it is said he was a sportsman, although I could find very little evidence of this. By the time he was 17, his brother Alexander was executed for a plot on the Tsar. Lenin became maniacally devoted to revolution and to his ideas related to Marxism. Socialists view sports as a capitalist means of extracting money from people. As Charles Barbary writes in his article, Marxism and Sport, from the 1996 journal International Socialism, quote, Sport, despite the perception of participants and spectators, belongs to the realm of unfree activity. The rationality of capitalist production 
based on commodity exchange, reduces all individuality to a minimum. It organizes and controls people not only in their work, but in their leisure. As you can tell, the idea of sport as it exists today is incompatible with Marxist-Leninist or socialist thought. This is why we see so little material about sports in the Soviet Union in the early days. Or is it? My opinion is that sport had to take a back seat as the hold of the Bolsheviks on the country was so tenuous they didn't need nor could they afford this kind of distraction. This, of course, would begin to change under the leadership of Stalin. He knew he could use sports and the people's interest in them to take their minds off the hardships they had to endure. Also, turns out Stalin really liked sports, especially football, or as the Americans call it, soccer. Starting in the mid-1920s, Soviet leadership began to promote sporting activities throughout the country, but more importantly, within the larger cities. As you would expect, it took on a collectivist bent. Clubs would form, with the largest being Spartak, which was founded in 1935 by industrial trade unions. The association boasted about 120,000 recreational athletes just two years after its creation. Later, the association united workers from every conceivable industry, and by the mid-1950s, its membership exceeded 450,000. While in 1928, there were about 53,000 people involved in club sports, by 1935, the number had risen to over half a million. In order to create a club, you needed government approval and something to tie the club to. One, Dynamo, was attached to all things the NKVD. CSKA, known as the Central Sports Club of the Army, was for soldiers, and both still exist to this day. Stadiums, pools, gyms, and other sporting venues began to pop up throughout the Soviet Union. In 1928, the largest stadium in the country at that time was built for Dynamo, with around 25,000 seats. The Air Force had its own club, and after the war, it was overseen by none other than Stalin's son, Vasily. He actively developed the district sports teams, including soccer, hockey, and basketball. If you've watched the comedy movie, Death of Stalin, you would have encountered a scene where Vasily is yelling at the hockey team to pick things up. This is not surprising, as there is a legend that during a soccer match between Yugoslavia and the USSR in 1952, Stalin phoned the dressing room, threatening that the Soviet team was not permitted to lose to the, quote, Nazis from Tito's clique. Fearing for their lives, they managed to draw. While many citizens of the 16 countries in the USSR participated in sports, quite a few suffered through Stalin's purges. One of the reasons without participation in sports had to have a political side to it. Anyone seen as not being a pure communist would be thrown out of their prospective club and, during the Great Purge of 1937-38, to executed or sent to the Gulag. At the end of World War II and the emergence of the Soviet Union as a powerhouse, sports began to take an international turn. 
Stalin viewed this as a propaganda tool, but only started it when they uh, joined the 1952 Olympic Games held in Helsinki. The Soviet Union, the People's Republic of China, Hong Kong, Indonesia, Israel, and Thailand made their debuts at these games. The Soviet Union would dominate the Olympic Games between 1952 and 1988. Some 30 years after its collapse, it is still in second place for the number of medals won behind the United States. During those years, at the Summer Olympics, the Soviet Union won 395 gold, 319 silver, and 296 bronze medals. At the Winter Olympics, they garnished 78 gold, 57 silver, and 59 bronze medals for a total of 1,204. The next highest total for any team for the entirety of the Olympic Games from 1896 to 2022 is Great Britain at a total of 950 medals. This goes to show the total domination of the USSR in the Olympic Games. So, how did they do so well? There are a number of reasons for their stellar performances. First, for most of the history of the Olympics, the athletes were supposed to be amateurs. Technically, the Soviet competitors were amateurs, but they were, in fact, professionals. They would work for the sponsor of the clubs they worked out at. Many were soldiers of the Red Army. So, they did not need an outside job, as many other participants from other non-communist nations did. Another major issue that caused them to have such a high number of wins, and it continues to this day, is the prevalence of doping of Soviet and Russian athletes. Russia has had more competitors stripped of their medals by far. 44 athletes have lost their medals because of doping. That represents one quarter of all the cases, with the next highest being Ukraine with 11. The former Soviet Union was a master at doping and evading detection. One of the more obvious places where doping was most prevalent was with women and hormones. I can remember my parents yelling at the television when they'd see these huge, muscular women from the Soviet team appear at events like the hammer throw or some other sport requiring great strength. We know about this issue due to the uncovering of the information after the breakup of the USSR and from interviews with coaches and athletes of the day. While few Soviet athletes were ever caught aside from the ones that we mentioned, Everyone knew that doping was happening. As Thomas Hunt wrote in his book, Drug Games, the International Olympic Committee and the Politics of Doping, citing a 1989 Australian study, quote, There is hardly a medal winner at the Moscow Games, certainly not a gold medal winner who is not on one sort of drug or another, usually several kinds. The Moscow Games might well have been called the Chemist's Games. The Moscow Games were the one that the United States and many Western nations boycotted due to the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan in 1979. There is one other reason why the Soviet women were so incredibly dominant in the Olympic Games. The equality that the Soviet system gave them in respect to men. While inequality between men and women is an issue to present times, 
This was not that much of a case in the Soviet Union. Men and women were given some of the same opportunities and training not offered to those in the rest of the world. It was part of the ideal of an egalitarian society that supposedly was at the core of Soviet and communist ideology. There were, of course, instances where men were given more benefits and better conditions than women in the USSR, but the difference with the West was dramatic. It wasn't until the 1980s and 90s that women had more opportunities given to them, while in the Soviet Union, they were way ahead in the early 1950s. Another explanation for great showing at the Olympics was the theory that the Soviets had regarded training. They were firm believers in the triangle theory, where the more people they trained and participated in sports, the larger the base of the pyramid. This meant they could produce more top-level athletes to succeed in international competitions. Additionally, many of their training ideas were truly state-of-the-art. When I was somewhat of a competitive athlete back in the late 1970s, my older brother, a world-class runner at one time, would send me material outlining Soviet and Eastern Bloc training methods to try out. Some, I mean, really seemed absolutely ludicrous. But others were eye-opening and helped me run some of my fastest races while a teenager and young adult. Switching gears for a bit, away from the Olympics. Soviet propaganda was something I intend to do an entire episode about in the future. When it came to sports, the posters and taglines were sometimes inspirational, but sometimes they were really kind of funny. Here's a collection that I found during my research. Be hearty if you want to be healthy. Eat diversely, regularly, and moderately. Getting fatter means getting older. Sport is health, willpower, and bravery. You may not be a champion, but you must be in good shape. Railroad workers become members of Locomotive Club and start playing sports. And sun, air, and water multiply energy for labor. That last one uses a recurring theme of everything in Soviet society, which was focused on work and its benefits to communist life. Here's some additional ones. Include collective farmer, be athletic. The USSR is a mighty sports power. Youth, go skiing. We must set every world record. We stand for mass sportsmanship and downhill skiing. And with a child sitting on the lap of a Soviet male athlete, do you want to be like me? Exercise. For many years, the Soviet Union, as I mentioned earlier, would boycott competitions with the West until 1946 and many times afterward. They would join several international federations, including, in 1951, the International Olympic Committee. The first Soviet athlete to become a world champion in any sport was Grigory Novak, who, in 1946, won in weightlifting. From the website Russia Beyond, I came across the following comment that I found somewhat amusing. Quote, the USSR did more than boycott Western competitions. As a part of the campaign to combat submissiveness to the West, the government introduced Russian versions of many sporting terms. For example, the names of many boxing punches were replaced. 
uppercut became udaram snizu, strike from below, and hook, okovia udar, side blow. In rush in wrestling, the French souplesse or suplex was renamed brosoc progebom, deflection throw. Not only did they change the language of some of the terms in sports. They also changed whole sports to fit a nationalistic ideal. Again, from the Russia Beyond website, quote, In addition, the USSR invented its own sports. In the 1930s, for example, the Eastern martial arts jiu-jitsu and judo were banned and to be replaced by the ideologically correct fighting form, sambo, self-defense without weapons. In the 1960s, this sport was even recognized globally, included in many competitions. The USSR also devised a game based on volleyball and involved two teams divided by a net. But instead of volleying the ball, they were allowed to catch it. Because it was played by mostly young people or pioneers, they called it pioneer ball. The Soviet bureaucrats, as they were wont to do, created what they called the All-Union Sports Classification System. This formed a five-tier system, with the top being Merited Master of Sport, followed by Master of Sport, and classes A, B, and C. The Masters of Sport not only had to achieve physically, but they were also expected to serve as political and ideological examples, and to pass on their experience to younger athletes. As I mentioned earlier in the podcast, repression, especially during the time of the Great Purge, could hit the sports arena. Anyone who competed abroad could be considered compromised by the capitalist bourgeois foreigners. Fellow competitors, jealous of elite athletes, were often reported to the NKVD as spies, Trotskyists, or other subversive anti-Soviet agitators. It could become absolutely ridiculous during this period of paranoia. Going back to the website Russia Beyond, they write, quote, It reached the point of absurdity. For example, the ski club at the State University of Physical Culture, Sport, Youth, and Tourism was declared a terrorist organization. The student members were arrested, and their leader was shot. High jump record holder Nikolai Kovtun was arrested while working out because his parents had worked on the Harbin Railroad, part of the Chinese Eastern Railway. As I mentioned in one of the episodes on the Gulag, railway workers, engineers, and superiors were targets. In the 1930s, a campaign was launched against former workers on this particular railway line and their families to liquidate sabotage, espionage, and terrorist elements. Kovtun would spend 10 years in the gulag for being the son of one of the accused. And it gets even more absurd. The head of the Spartak Sports Association of Trade Unions, Nikolai Starotsin, was also denounced and sent to the camps. It is rumored that the real reason behind Starotsin's imprisonment was his soccer team's victory in the 1939 USSR Cup. En route to picking up the trophy, Spartak defeated the previously mentioned Dynamo, and even more dangerously, a club with the telling name Stalinets. 
a major sport that began during the time of the Russian Empire that continued on through Soviet times to this very day is known as bandy. It's been called Russian hockey, but it was likely to have been invented in Great Britain in the late 19th century. It is considered the national sport of Russia today. The Federation of International Bandy was founded in 1955 by the Soviet Union and three Nordic countries. Bandy is the only sport to enjoy the patronage of the Russian Orthodox Church. It is a ball sport played by two teams wearing ice skates on a large ice surface, either indoors or outdoors, while using sticks to direct a ball into the opposing team's goal. The rink is considerably larger than a standard hockey rink, closer to the size of a soccer pitch. It's kind of like a combination of ice hockey, soccer, and field hockey. Along with Sweden, first the Soviet Union, then Russia, has dominated the sport. Only once, in 2004, did another country win the international championship, and that was Finland. Today, about 15 countries field bandy terms or teams, although Russia and Sweden continue to dominate. As for other winter sports, biathlon is considered one of the most popular. For many of the Olympic and international competitions, figure skating showed Soviet dominance, especially in pair skating. When it came to the summer games, aside from track and field, boxing and fencing were extremely popular and saw a large number of medals awarded to Soviet athletes. Fencing was extremely popular amongst the Russian elite before the, Rus- before the revolution. Within the Russian Orthodox community, when I grew up, both girls and boys would train and compete in the sport of fencing here in the U.S. In his article for Sports Illustrated in 1957, Sports in the USSR, Jerry Cook wrote this about the subject. Quote, Soviets go about playing sports with a certain grimness that makes it look like they do not find much enjoyment in playing sports. Sports is so heavily integrated into society, in many cases, it's just another job. For example, workers in factories are required to do exercises throughout the workday that are designed to increase their productivity. By the late 1980s, Soviet athletes were allowed to travel by themselves to foreign competitions. The era of having them escorted by members of the KGB was over. The Soviet Union was desperate for cash, and their athletes were primed to win competitions that paid them handsomely. These winnings were heavily taxed, leaving little for the average Soviet athlete. Today, Russia has had its share of problems in the international community. It has had its athletes banned because of doping, and in response to the Russian invasion of Crimea and the invasion of Ukraine in 2022. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Join me next time when we begin a multi-part series on one of Russia's most important waterways, the Volga. And I'd like to end this again with a tribute to my uh, late daughter, Tasha, or Anastasia. If you'd like to just make a small donation, one of the things that she was very much into was Rotary, as I have been for over 25 years. Some of the joys she had, and and I have to say, she had special needs. Uh, She had a very extreme form of epilepsy, which hindered her life quite a bit. But she really enjoyed doing things like volunteering at the food bank with the Rotary Club. I have a picture on my Facebook page. 
of her with a whole group and and an exchange student from Italy who we're still in contact with after 14 years. She really enjoyed being part of our the three Rotary Clubs that I was involved with and still am. So what we're trying to do right now with our newer club, it's the Rotary Club of International Exchange. What we do is we really focus on something known as Rotary Youth Exchange, which we bring students from other countries, usually uh, before they go to college and high school, bring them to the United States and We send them from the United States to many foreign countries. My younger daughter, uh, Annika, spent a year in Italy where she is now completely conversed in Italian and taking uh, her third year of Italian at the University of Nevada, Reno. We have had students and and members of our club who have gone to Thailand, to Sweden, to Japan, all over the world. It's an amazing program to help young people understand the different cultures of the world and maybe go back to their home and tell them, hey, you know, we can work together as different countries. Uh, What we're doing right now is we're raising money to bring a child from a foreign country to Reno, Nevada, and it's going to cost us about $2,000 in total. We have a number of donations already made. If we can get to $1,500, there's another club that will – Give us the last $500. If you'd like to make any kind of donation to that, you just have to go to GoFundMe.com, look up Rotary Club of International Exchange, and you'll see a picture of a number of Rotary students that came to our country a few years ago. It is an amazing experience. I've hosted with my family a girl from Spain last year, from Italy, from all over the world. It's a great program, and it was something that my eldest daughter was very passionate about. And I'd like to end it with that and say, as usual, so until next time, das vidanya y spasiba bolshoya.